1: When terrorists struck the World Trade Center on September 11th, 2001, a small fleet of boats on a rescue mission converged on lower Manhattan. In one of the less told stories of 9-11 on those vessels, which ranged from ferries to tugboats to boats that hosted dinner cruises, mariners carried to safety almost half a million people. Saved at the seawall, stories from September 11th boatlift by Jessica DeLong, with a Ford by Mitchell Zukoff, tells their story. Jessica brings to this book her own skills as an author and journalist, and her experiences as the chief engineer on the New York City fireboat John J. Harvey. The Harvey was a historic preservation project before it was called back into service on September 11th to fight the terrible fires around the World Trade Center site. Saved at the Seawall is more than a book about September 11th, it's a story of work, New York Harbor and how the skills and mindsets that mariners developed over many years were summoned up on a terrible morning. Together, they pulled off the largest waterborne evacuation in history, larger than the evacuation of Dunkirk in World War II. I'm Robert Snyder, Manhattan Borough historian and Professor Emeritus of Journalism and American Studies at Rutgers University, Newark. I'm with Jessica thanks to the New Books Network and the Gotham Center for New York City History. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. Jessica, your involvement with this story starts long before September 11th, 2001. Tell us how you became a part of New York's maritime community.
0: <laughs> Purely by accident. Um, I did not grow up around boats. I you know, have, have some very early childhood memories of being very excited to be on a whale watching cruise and um, getting a bit seasick. Uh, and so... Um, Even though I grew up in Massachusetts, sometimes people assume, okay, right along the water on the North Shore, as we like to call it, um, but that's not how I came to it. Um, I was actually working uh, a dot-com job during the height of the dot-com bubble. uh, I was working in a startup that uh, was subletting office space from a tiny uh, little company uh, in the Empire State Building. And so the person who we were renting this office space from was one of the original people involved with purchasing Fireboat John J. Harvey at a scrap auction. It was actually retired by New York City and given up for scrap. And it was destined to be chopped up to become, you know, the next. Fleet of Toyotas or something, and instead, this group of individuals saved the boat. And he said, "Hey, come on down. Uh, We're gonna have a volunteer day, and come down and get dirty." And my everything, my whole world just perked up. Um, I was was working crazy hours as and just doing this virtual work where it was building websites. There was nothing you could touch or or connect with in any sort of physical way. And so I was really excited Um, and I went down and within very, very brief uh, period of time, I ended up uh, holding this sawzall, this big power saw, to, um, to and perched on top of this big diesel engine, uh, cutting out some unused heating pipe, and it was I was in bliss, just absolute bliss. I was so excited to be in this maze of complicated equipment. I couldn't even imagine understanding it, never mind engineering it, um, and I, I was just so thrilled and that was really um the very beginning shortly thereafter my dot com company did what dot com companies do best which is um the bubble burst in it and I got laid off and it was at the same time as, um, Huntley Gill, one of the still uh, founding members and still a trustee of the boat invited me to come down and try my hand in the engine room. Um, and just for clarity, this, the boat is a 1931 New York city fireboat. It was the first internal combustion. It was the model for engineering of fireboats in its, in its day, built the same year as the empire state building. Um, and, which is to say that it is no longer at the cutting edge of technology. um, And it's a bellboat. So what that means is that the engineer in the engine room, technically underwater below the waterline stays down below the whole time and uh, actually takes signals on telegraphs from the wheelhouse. And the pilot in the wheelhouse is signaling down, telling the engineer how fast, they want to go and in which direction. And the engineer, in this case, me actually pulls the levers and, and, um, makes those changes to the prop motors that actually move the boat through the water. So I had zero experience with this. I was reassured by, um, by Huntley Gill that a trained monkey could do this job. And because I didn't realize he was lying, I said, okay, great, sure. And, um, and I'll never forget, I write about this in my first book, actually, My River Chronicles. which is actually mostly about the history of, um, of New York Harbor and the Hudson river and much less about me. But I do tell this story about being watched for my first time, pulling the pulling the boat off the dock and being watched by this entire crowd of men. And, um, And I couldn't reach the levers because I'm 5'5", which is a perfectly normal height for a woman, um, but it wasn't really designed for someone my size. So in any event, um, that's how I got my start um, as a mariner. Uh, And since then, that was a long time ago. So I worked for 20 years aboard Fireboat John J. Harvey. The last uh, 11 years, I was chief engineer. So I, I, I grew a lot from that first day as a fledgling engineer.
1: Before we get to the events of September 11th, 2001, could you sketch out the harbor for our listeners? On the day before the attacks, what was the harbor like in its size and its shape and its watercraft?
0: Yes. And actually, if it's okay, if you'll indulge me, I'd love to go back a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Um, because what is so just marvelous about New York Harbor is, um, is is the history of its working waterfront. And so New York City had grown up around its waterways, as you well know. Um, the harbor offered this natural deep water uh, channel access and these two separate river routes to the sea. And this was a, sh- a sheltered harbor that rarely would freeze over entirely more so early on it did, but um, it it was this natural wonder. And and the Port of New York was the busiest in the world from 1830 to 1960. And what we forget now, because most of the vestiges of this industry, some of them still remain, but very, very few at this point. And already by 2001, there were few of these um, vestiges of industry remaining. But at one time, and certainly when uh, Fireboat John J. Harvey was plying the waters for the first time, there were 76 miles of usable frontage created by the finger piers that jutted out from the western shore of Manhattan. And so just to like, that boggles the mind when you think about the skinny Manhattan Island, <laughs> um, how much extra space was created by having these piers that stuck out um, of the edge. And, and I think of them as Almost uh, as as the city is growing up and the piers are stretching out. And at the same time, the the skyscrapers are growing taller and taller. And there's almost like this reflection happening of the skyscrapers in the water in a way, um, because there's all this other city that's actually sticking out into the river. Um, And so... All along the seawall of Manhattan Island, the world's cargo had changed hands and shipping had fueled the city's economy. It was, um, it made Manhattan the dominant American seaport before the Civil War, and it was one of the largest major international ports, um, by 1900. So at the time, we now, if we think about shipping at all, which most people don't, we think about, um, uh, sea containers and um, containerization. But back in the day, there was um, break bulk cargo, which actually comes back again. This is really a preamble to what ends up happening again on September 11th during the boat lift, which was really powerful for me to see um, the sort of return to the days of break bulk cargo in a way. Where So break bulk cargo is that goods are transported in barrels and crates and on pallets, and they're moved by hand by dock workers. And so these, um, many of the piers, the Finger Piers, were covered piers, and they were all around the, the edge of Manhattan, particularly on the western uh, shore. And there were steamers and ferries and tugboats pulling strings of barges around them. If you look at black and white photos of the New York Harbor of yore, I mean, you really see this, um, there was this laneless thoroughfare of maritime traffic. So fast forward, you bring it to 2001, and already many, many, many of the finger piers had been dismantled. And that actually becomes important um, when you take into account what happens later that morning with vessels operating in very um, <laughs> unfamiliar is not right the, the right word. There are so many obstructions below the water in New York Harbor because of this, these vestiges of industry. And so knowing how to avoid those, uh, those obstructions, which are listed, uh, you know, obstruction listed on the chart was actually a really important piece of um, especially tugboats, which are deep draft boats uh, managing to operate in these waters safely, which is not their normal, uh, their normal path or mode of operations. Um, So by 2001, this whole this whole um array of working harbor is long disappeared and um people have gone through a stage certainly in the 80s where everybody wanted to get as far away from the the waterfront as possible because it was as you know right it was festering and rat rat filled and you know everybody wanted to turn their backs on the river because it was nasty now, in two thousand and one, we're seeing there's this return to acknowledging that the the harbor is even there, that the river is even there, but not in a a, a workboat friendly way. And instead, what what has happened is that there are these sparkling esplanades that are along the shoreline of Manhattan for a passive view of the river, and. And uh, a detail that comes up over and over and over again, and, and people who have seen photos of um, lower Manhattan on September 11th can see this, these railings that line the whole seawall that are curved inland, quite literally designed to keep you off the water. And that posed a lot of problems for the evacuation Um that was still remarkably successful and absolutely necessary, and really just an incredible feat of history and humanity. And yet, there were challenges that were that arose from this uh, separation from the harbor that we once had.
1: What were your personal experiences on September eleventh, two thousand and
0: one? So i um, I was like many many people, not on Manhattan Island, and completely caught off guard in this wholly unexpected catastrophe. And uh, I was in Brooklyn at the time. And um, very, very quickly, what happened was that all modes... So to back up, Manhattan is an island, right? And even people in New York City tend to forget that because we get very accustomed to taking the subway, bridges and tunnels that, that makes the transition between different boroughs seem sort of seamless. So that day slowly, it's almost like doors closing behind people, Manhattan Island gets shut down. And so I had no way onto the island. And it didn't even occur to me, quite frankly, to, um, I knew that I wanted to help, but I had no idea how it would get there. And because I was only six months into my new apprenticeship as a marine engineer, it wasn't an immediate part of my identity, unlike mariners, seasoned mariners, who instantly realized and recognized that they had a boat and could help in that way. So I, uh, my story uh, at Ground Zero actually starts on the 12th when I learned that fireboat John J. Harvey was there on site and actively pumping water. Um, As soon as I learned that the boat was there, I said, how do I get there? And I managed to get there on the 12th uh, in a small... Hurricane boat, basically um, utilizing the access point of um, the FDNY Marine Division headquarters in the Brooklyn Navy Yard, and these merchant mariners. I remember they. I, I felt so akin to them because when I was brought down to the to the water's edge by the powers that be, and of course I had to get clearance and all of this, but um, the the merchant mariners who were charged with taking me over, just like threw down their sandwiches. And they were so eager for anybody to ask them to do anything that felt helpful. Um, so there I am on this boat and I am in this PFD, this life jacket that is way too big for me. And I'm standing at the the, the front of this go fast boat with the, the water splashing on me and the the wind and I'm holding on, you know, very tightly to the rail. Not only just for the physical reality of being on this bobbing boat, but also just realizing that once I round this corner, nothing will ever be the same. And um, and the smoke is getting thicker. As as you probably recall, the the wind was actually blowing towards Brooklyn, and so the cloud was actually coming towards us over here in Brooklyn. And as as I'm rounding the corner, I see um, fireboat John J. Harvey there alongside all of these other workboats that really are, are never in that spot. (laughs) They're not, you don't have workboats lining up along the seawall, um, just South and North of, of North Cove, which is, um, the little notch that's cut out of the Western shore of Manhattan. Um, that's the closest to the world trade center towers. And I was, you know, the tension in my body was intense, um, but there was also this this sort of swelling of warmth when I realized that the boat was pumping water, and I saw the boat actually doing the service for which she had been built so many decades prior. And um, and it, it was such a privilege to be able to to help in some way and to provide. The firefighting water that was necessary because there was no other water available on site for four days after the towers collapsed because the water mains were shattered and the hydrants were covered by debris. And so um, retired New York City fireboat John J. Harvey worked alongside the active duty fireboats um, to, to pump that water, which was so necessary that day and the days after.
1: You point out in your book that mariners sprang to the rescue even before an official call for help went out. What explains that?
0: Yeah, the thing that's um, the thing that's important to recognize, which is, it's really it's really easy to look back with hindsight and sort of see how the day is going to go and. As as people will recall, and now of course there are so many people born who won't recall. The only way that they're going to know is is through the collected history, which is why I feel so strongly about making sure that this history has been recorded and and is shared. That um, nobody knew what was happening, and instantaneously there's this idea that the plane crash was it was a small plane that it was an accident, and even in that circumstance, the ferry captains and crews knew that even an accident would make their vessels hugely important. So they knew that there would be transportation disruptions um, to the bridge and tunnel bridge and tunnel traffic, and there were almost instantly. There was a at eight forty six a.m. There's an MTA subway initiating. Uh, emergency procedures. There's a path train dispatcher who orders the trains to speed through the trade center and return to New Jersey. So instantly you're seeing transportation shutdowns. The ferry captains and crews recognize that. And so even if it was just an accident, they knew that they would not be going offline as they typically do at the end you know, of rush hour, um, that their boats would be needed and that their boats were the fastest way off the island for people who needed to get off quickly the other thing that we tend to forget is that this was a disastrous situation even from the very beginning because there were massive explosions the thousands of gallons of burning aviation flu- fuel explodes there are fireballs shooting down the elevator shafts and bursting out onto the lower floors it's believed that 300 people were that di- died instantaneously upon that first impact but the fuel and the fires were creating catastrophe and there were so many injuries straight away. There was a report of falling debris, setting the clothing of a man who was outside on fire. So here you have this, these examples of these injuries. And that is um, uh, the role that the, the, especially the New York waterway ferries, but the other fast ferries played a huge role in um, transporting injured people to get very quickly to ambulance, and triage centers that were established um, on the Jersey side uh, very
1: quickly. So what did maritime rescuers have to do to save people on September 11th? What kind of obstacles did they have to overcome? It's so interesting because I've talked to so
0: many different people and, you know, gotten eyewitness testimony from very different sources. And over and over again, the theme that comes up is that the experience was characteristically different depending on where you were. So the fates of individuals we know now looking back were determined by a matter of inches, right? I mean, it could just, it could be the difference between life and death. And so that was also the experience on a larger scale, the individual mariners at the beginning. It was, um, there were some sort of just simple over and back. Let's load people on quickly. We're a passenger ferry. We know how to do this. We do it efficiently. We do it safely. We'll just get them over and back, over and back. Some of it was as simple as that because they had slips that they could they could, you know, go into. And of course, everything as the, cat- the catastrophe evolves, everything gets worse. And so even those same ferry captains and, and crews of boats that are designed for passengers now the debris cloud it means that they're operating blind by radar and they're trying to get in, fit into their little slip using radar alone. Then it's worsened because the debris cloud is so thick and the particulate matter is so thick that the radar fails to work. So that's just even within the ferry captain fa- uh, ferry boats where they're designed to move passengers. Now you think about the tugboats and Army Corps of Engineer vessels and NYPD Harbor Unit vessels and the 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 dinner cruise and go fast boats um, the like the Chelsea screamer, which is like a thrill ride. These were not designed to bring a whole bunch of people across off the island. And, um, and so you have every vessel having different, uh, different needs and capacities. You have deep draft tugboats, which for people unfamiliar with tugboats, there's a whole lot of boat below the waterline that you can't see. And so They needed to be able to navigate to the shore. They're absolutely not designed to take on passengers. So you have people, the tugboats, well, to paint the picture you have in some places, people 10 deep pressed up against these fences and railings against the seawall begging mariners to take them off the Island. Um, And that's just, you know, people are dust covered. People are burned. Some are injured. People are panicked, even if they're not physically injured and, a lot of people ended up in the water. Some people jumped. um, Some people had sort of desperate fantasies of swimming to New Jersey. People were swept out to sea. There were a number of rescues, um, uh, particularly by the ferry boats that were well-equipped with man overboard drills and ladders, um, uh, meaning they had practice doing this, um, getting people out of the water. But on tugboats, you um, you have at some places... Uh, horizontal ladders that are being used for people to climb across like crawl across there are situations with people climbing up fendering this you know ext- the extruded fendering that's at the the nose of a of a model bow tugboat so all of these situations are happening there's an incredible story of an NYPD harbor unit vessel that is trying to evacuate passengers and seeing the sort of um, lower to the water line vessels at South Cove because they can get in and there are walkways that are lower down and closer to the water. The problem is they're lined with these wooden railings. And so this, this uh, harbor unit police officer, I think he's a a sergeant. um, He goes along and ties a rope uh, to the railing and plucks it off plucks that like, you know, line by line plucks off the railing to make it easier for passengers to board. There were situations where, um, because there are no breaks in the railing that I described that curves inland, uh, firefighters literally could, took out cutting torches and cut holes in the railing. Um, later on, they're, they're not doing that in the panic, but there's a, a several awful stories of serious injuries that happened because, um, This is a tidal estuary. It's not really a river. And the tides were ripping that day, um, the current. And the the boats with the tide swing, the steel deck of Fireboat John D. McKean in particular, was well below the top of the seawall. So even after somebody clambered over the railing, when they jumped down, it was
1: perilous. What kind of choices did mariners have to make on September 11th? Such
2: an interesting question. And this notion of choice is something that I keep coming back to. Um, There's this moment that I describe in the book where um, uh, uh, Captain Michael McPhillips talks about, he, he sort of catches himself as he's describing the choice that he made. He said, well, we didn't have a choice. And then he stopped himself and he said, well, I guess we did have the choice. But it didn't feel like a choice. You would have done it. Anybody would have done it. Anybody would have helped in this way. We had the capacity to help people. And who wouldn't do this? So that was the feeling, the sentiment that I heard over and over again from Mariners, where like it wasn't a question. Like this is just human decency. This is just what you do. And this is what is also sort of steeped into maritime tradition. Um, Although the rules of admiralty Admiralty law didn't uh, technically play a part in this um, there is this idea of of aiding those in peril that that carries forth into maritime culture the thing that really still rattles me to this day is that if we take away the lens of everything we know about how the day progressed if we can somehow bring ourselves back into that moment where this is Armageddon as far as people understand it I mean they don't realize whether or not this is literally just the beginning of the end of the world. And I hear that over and over again from mariners. So just imagine you have filled your boat beyond capacity with passengers. You get as quickly as you can to safer shores, whether that's New Jersey or Staten Island or Brooklyn, wherever you are going to be able to offload safely. You've tied up lines, at least a cursory tie-up, to be able to offload passengers safely. And at a certain moment, you have to instruct the crew or do it yourself to Cast off lines again, turn the boat around, and head straight, steering straight to the island that is on fire, where everything that's happening just keeps escalating, getting worse and worse, and the dust cloud is consuming the entire airspace. There was a choice that was made over and over and over again, and these people chose to help. They chose to help. They chose to use the capacities that they had, the skill set that they had, the the tools that they had quite literally, and all the training too. Because for example, for me to get my Coast Guard license, I had to get trained in shipboard firefighting. I had to get trained in first aid because the the job of being a a working mariner is that it's an enclosed space. You can't wait for the rescue workers to come. You have to kind of get yourself out of whatever situation. So that ethos certainly informed uh, the choices made that day. But also and really my big, big message about this book and through this history is that over and over and over again, we see moments throughout history where people make that choice, where the first first responders at any disaster are almost always just regular civilians. And over and over again, you see them creatively problem solving, using whatever resourcefulness they can apply to help people. This is the default setting that we arrive on the planet with. And I think the more we can emphasize that and remember that, and even as we're reckoning with the brutality of, our history in so many ways, which is really important that we do. It's also important for us to remember who else we have been, and we are humans who help each other. And this is a piece of our heritage that we need to reclaim and stay connected with.
1: That's a great point. I was also struck reading your book, how, you know, the cataclysm of 9-11 threw together professional mariners, civilian volunteers, Coast Guard authorities, how did they get along on the water that day?
2: This is one of my favorite parts of the story. It just, you know, if you picture disaster, a, a different kind of disaster, right? The, you have a sense that there's all this turbulence in the in the plane and the plane's going to go down. And you reach out and grab the hand of the stranger next to you. You don't ask them who they voted for. You don't like, oh, you're from the south, I'm from the north. There's just this, like, in moments of crisis, there is this human Connection that just comes to the fore, and that's what happened that day. And so you have, you know, people in button-down white shirts uh, hauling hose line to help firefighters because they needed some help. You have this incredible story that I recount of this gentleman who was in the World Financial Center evacuates. To make a long story short, he ends up. Oh, I almost don't want to tell you the end of the story, but he ends up um, coming back. He's safely evacuated to New Jersey, and he watches the firefighters on the boat that has just brought him to safety, and he lives in New Jersey, so he's home safe. He watches the second tower come down, and he sees the look on the faces of the firefighters, knowing that their fellow firefighters are, are perishing in that moment, and they're witnessing it. And he looks at them, and he says, I'm going with you. And the firefighter says, what? And he's like, you guys need help. I'm going with you. And this guy ends up working the whole afternoon hauling hose line. That was so necessary because there were raging fires that day that we sort of forget about because they weren't just the towers on fire, although those burned for four months. But that choice, this is just This is about humans. This is about humans. And that's what's just so incredible. Um, And remembering these pieces of it is just, it's, it gives us hope for how we could come together sure. in the
1: future. Sure. Did you come across any examples of less than noble behavior in your research?
2: I did not. Um, the I, I think the only the only example I would use, and this um, actually goes to the earlier question you asked. There were cases, um, specifically, I was told about what was happening on the Staten Island Ferry for one of the trips, where there was deep fear once people realized that there was that this was a terrorist attack and not an accident. There were people of Middle Eastern descent or Arab or, uh, perceived to be Muslim, uh, who were singled out for suspicion uh, in mm-hmm. like straight away. Mm-hmm. Obviously we yeah. know that the, the, um, the anti-Muslim sentiment grew very rapidly in the city. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about sort of the beginnings of that, where mm-hmm. there were mm-hmm. young men who were perceived to be of Middle Eastern descent who had backpacks and there were passengers who were suspicious and wanted to know what was in the backpacks, which was textbooks because they were students. And so that, that I would say, um, that fear mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. did mm-hmm. drive some division, yes.
1: What became of the mariners who did rescue work on September 11th? Were there any things like health problems in the long run?
2: Yes, unfortunately there were. Um, and it's important to remember that not only did Mar- mariners participate in the boat lift evacuation, but they also performed other service functions for many days after September 11th. So that went from running supplies, which I actually mentioned slightly earlier, but that was sort of the image of people carrying boxes of water and eyewash and masks and flashlights and they were carrying it hand to hand from the boats. So the 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 mariners actually played a huge role in actually supplying uh, the rescue workers at Ground Zero. They also worked to remove debris. So for I believe it was a year and a half after the, the debris pile was actually taken apart, taken down, collected, and put on barges and moved over water. So there were a lot of extended exposures for different Mariners. And Mariners also um, moved personnel, rescue workers, families, people like that. Um, So their exposures continued. This is a really important piece in terms of what we need to be doing better, which is that the World Trade Center Health Program has done their best to collect data, but there is no uniform term to apply to Mariners, which meant that when I asked them to run the numbers and find out how many people had been affected by illnesses, it was a very uh, ad hoc thing that we came up with because if I call myself a deckhand or if I call myself a captain or if I call myself, uh, you know, an engineer, what kind of engineer? So Mariners got lost certainly in the count. At the bare minimum, we have at least 120 Mariners who are currently registered with the World Trade Center Health Program. And um, more than half of them suffer from at least mm. one World Trade Center exposure-related <laughs> illness. And we know that there have been uh, multiple deaths, multiple deaths, and multiple long-term illnesses, cancer, and, um, and uh, other diseases, liver disease, and things like that.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, but I'm not surprised.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Moving forward, in in one scene in your book, you describe September 11th, 2016. You talk about going down to the Staten Island Ferry and how the captain who worked on September 11th, 2001, James Parisi, had retired. And you write that if you asked a crewman for the captain's name, he'd say, Henry, it's not our policy to give out that information. What do you think was going on there? Well, there's... um There's
2: really, really interesting stuff that comes up um, sort of later in the book where I speak with uh, Port Authority higher-ups basically, who talk about how, um, I believe her name is Beth Ann Rooney, and she was really very much in charge of port security in the aftermath of September 11th, that she explained to me that on September 10th, you could quite literally take a lawn chair and go down to a container port And just sit there and eat your lunch and watch the ships offload we had really 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 problematic uh, lack of security in the port and all of that is absolutely transformed and so the i mean certainly you remember the staten island ferry right did you ever take your car across the staten Mm -hmm, island mm -hmm, ferry mm -hmm. that's not allowed anymore and um so the lockdown that had to happen—it really absolutely changed everything in terms of port security, not just in uh, the port of New York and New Jersey, but also um, uh, internationally. There were whole new considerations, um, and so I would argue that it's a piece of that—that um, that there's a lot more fear, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, mariners who experienced that day or even if they hadn't, it's in our history, it's steeped into our culture now. Um, and that, I think, is what was at play when I asked. Yeah.
1: In your epilogue, you write about how you're uncomfortable with hero narratives about September 11th. Tell us why that's so.
2: It's, I'm I'm literally writing an essay right now about that. I actually had um, the incredible opportunity to have this conversation about heroism with uh, Chief Joseph Pfeiffer, who was the first chief on site um, within minutes after the first plane hit. And um, his story is really tremendous. And he's he's written a, a book about it um, called Ordinary Heroes. So I've been thinking about this for decades, this hero narrative thing. And I think the big problem for me is that when we separate people into heroes and then everybody else, we dehumanize everybody. By lionizing people and putting them up on a pedestal as heroes, we actually devalue the incredible bravery and selflessness that they actually managed as humans, the human choices that they made, the human sacrifice that they made of their you know, their health and well-being out of this human, humanistic impulse mm-hmm. to help mm-hmm. others, right? And we also lose those of us who end up in the category of not heroes, because we lose track of our own capacity to make these choices, our Mm -hmm. own agency, our own willingness and ability to see a problem and take a step. And what I like to say over and over is that very often the steps that we can take to help somebody do not involve taking your boat and gunning straight for manhattan which is on fire (laughs) you don't have to do that right most of us will never have to do that but instead what could you do what small step could you do to actually follow the impulse that i argue that's actually our default setting it's it's the the other things that come through i think that's overlaying i think it's as we get further and further away from how we've arrived here um and so I, i really want The choices that Mariners did actually make, which we spoke about, right, I want that to remind us of our own agency, our own capacity to choose kindness. And honestly, there is nothing like a global pandemic to remind us of what is at stake. We are completely interconnected and interdependent. Despite how divided we like to think that we are or we are distressed that we think we are, we are actually completely interdependent and my safety is contingent upon your safety is contingent upon his safety is contingent upon her safety and theirs so we have to come together there is no alternative i mean climate crisis i mean we are all located on the same floating ball in space okay that was not technically after it <laughs> but you get my point and we we have to envision other ways of being and I frankly think that kindness is way more contagious than any Delta variant or Epsilon or Zeta Theta or wherever we're going next. Kindness is much more contagious.
1: I think that's a really important point. But I'm also struck by how the attacks September 11th were met with a sense of solidarity that you could feel. The experience of living through COVID is very different. There's not the same kind of solidarity there. What do you think explains that?
2: So I think... When we look back at who we were and how we came together in the aftermath of September 11th and who we are now and how we have come together in the, there is still no after, aftermath of COVID because it's still, still a raging pandemic going on that's killing people um, and making people really, really ill for the long term as well. Um, it's important to remember that there are serious psychological wellness sort of mental health advantages to collectively recognizing trauma we know this and so the the way that people came together sort of arm in arm uh lighting candles um singing songs giving hugs and just mourning together as a city in union square and you know in parks Mm -hmm. all over Mm -hmm. the city um that that togetherness and those you know murals that were set up and just That really makes it possible for us to heal because we're social creatures. And so the divisions, you know, when you look at the counterpoint of March 2020 in New York City, where we're quarantining our mail and sanitizing our groceries and terrified of our neighbors and that, that separateness, those are really stark comparison examples. But, and I think it's also really important to remember all of the sort of remote hands-off kindnesses that actually were expressed. There were Mm -hmm. people, there are still in my neighborhood, there's a free fridge that still Mm -hmm. gets stocked Mm -hmm. and, you know, we bring stuff there, we Mm -hmm. load it up Mm -hmm. and every time you go, there's more food. There is, um, there is and has been an incredible effort that people have made to take care of one another. Um, even if they had to stay socially distant or physically different distance to do that. Um, so I think it's important though, and I'm also writing another piece um, about anniversaries and about the power, like we we commemorate anniversaries of, of the many cultures uh, of the deaths of our individual loved ones. That's something that we do as it's an adaptive process, a healing process. And so the tricky part when you compare September 11th, which was occurred at a singular moment, um, and it was sort of like the before and after was very clearly delineated. And so there's a date that means something that if you say 9-11, it means something very clear. There is no similar date um, when you look when you look at the COVID pandemic because so many people had different experiences of it. Um, And so I think that just sort of a call forward, i really think that we're going to have to ultimately decide on a on a on a day to to honor those losses and i'm really hoping that with the 20th anniversary that we who are commemorating the the anniversary on september 11th will hold in our hearts the collective grief which is just i mean it is going to be pouring down on us for for wave after wave after wave so many losses so if we can hold those folks in our hearts as well and and connect the dots because these are the bookends of an era and um it's just it's it's powerful it's painful and the only way through it is together
1: yes and we're, and and when we gather and you know in decades down the road and we're thinking about the pandemic we're also thinking about September 11th what do you want people to remember about mariners in New York Harbor on September 11th?
2: I think the big thing is that each of us has a set of tools that could be useful in a disaster. We may not think of them ahead of time. We may not realize what we're made of until that moment. But mariners were able to very quickly recognize, okay, I have this boat. I know how to steer it. I know how to throw lines and you know, tie up to trees, which was necessary because there was no infrastructure for, for accommodating big boats. Um, okay, I know how to set up this ladder uh, because there's no safety ladder down the seawall. I know how to, right? I know how to and I can and I will. And I think if we can keep remembering those things, each of us has a role to play. And there was such a huge volunteer effort even after that morning that you saw at ground zero and and actually internationally right there are so many opportunities for people to come together to help there are so many opportunities today right now for us to come together and help and i'm hoping that people look at mariners not as another set of heroes who need to get the merit badge and i really mean no disrespect by that because these were heroic actions but my argument is that we all have that within us. We all have that capacity. And if we can remember that, let's use the skills, tools, experience that we have to be able to make the situation better, whatever it is.
1: You mentioned along the way, a couple different articles, pieces you're working on that all relate to the themes that you develop in this book. Could you just tell us what we can anticipate down the road?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, I'm writing a piece for The Daily Beast that should be out um, the the week of the anniversary. I write regularly for CNN about a lot of different subjects, but I've written about talking to children about difficult things. That's actually a, a bit of a personal essay uh, given my own struggle with talking to my kids about this which i've finally done this year uh i need to write the follow-up for that because i've finally done it um and then i'm i'm writing a piece for cnn.com about the connection to anniversaries um and and why it's so important i also have pieces um an excerpt coming out in Lithub. um i have uh, a, there's a story coming out in smithsonian magazine about this or and Spike Lee's documentary, New York City Epicenters, um, which is about the, the, to, the, the sort of parallels or the connections between September 11th and the COVID pandemic, that um, feature, the episode that features the boat lift is actually coming out on September 5th. And I was able to um, inform Spike Lee for the first time about the boat lift. That's how we learned about it, which is really quite an honor since I've been trying to tell this story for a very long time. So lots of stuff coming up. And people can come to my website, which is where I post all my uh, events and writing and all of that. And that is jessicadulong.com or seawall.com if that's easier.
1: That's great. Thank you. I'm Robert Snyder, Jessica DeLong. Thanks for being with us today for the Gotham Center for New York City History and the New Books Network. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. I really appreciate it.